Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. And thank you so much for joining Watermark's podcast series, Women of the C-Suite where we have the pleasure of hosting some of the most distinguished female executives anywhere about their journeys and the paths they took to get to the top. I'm Nicole Ward-Parr, and I join you with my co-host, the CEO of Watermark, Peggy Northrup. In this series, we draw out meaningful insights and candid perspectives that will help you to make your mark. Neha Sampat is a three-time tech founder and CEO at ContentStack, She recently led the company through a $57 million plus Series B, taking the total capital raise to $89 million over the past two years. Neha previously founded and led digital transformation consultancy, Raw Engineering, and digital experience platform Built.io, which was acquired by Software AG in September 2018. Neha often speaks at conferences and events about her experiences as an entrepreneur, a female founder, a leader, a culture builder, and equity champion. She's received numerous awards for her work and finds time to serve on boards, run her own podcast, and she's a sommelier too. Not only that, she came to her career without having a technical background. And thank you so much for being here with us today. One of the first questions we always ask is the twisting, turning journey of many a female CEO. And yours seems to maybe have some more twists and turns than the average. Or maybe you just started out life when you were 10 years old saying, I want to be a tech CEO, even though I don't have a tech. I don't want to be an engineer. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you, Peggy. Thanks for the setup. And thank you for having me on, both of you. Happy to be here. So No, I definitely did not take the path most traveled and definitely not ordinary, but not necessarily intentionally. It kind of fell into a lot of things. So I'll talk a little bit about that, but I essentially spent most of my childhood exposed to a lot of entrepreneurship through people that I spent time with. My dad is one in particular. He was always trying something. He never really got one of his businesses off the ground and very far, but he was always trying things and I always wanted to help. And I think that it instilled a spirit of entrepreneurship in me at a very young age. And And it wasn't tech. I was doing when I was playing and pretending it was rubber band factory or fashion house or all these little fun things. And then when I was in middle school, I kind of graduated to actually trying to make some money. And I did a babysitter's club and I did Olympics in my neighborhood and I did a fan club for a boy band. And I actually made some money doing some of those things. I learned really early on that if you turn a profit, you can reinvest that profit into something and turn it into the next thing. And so it just became like almost like something that just drives your adrenaline, gets you excited. And so I always knew I had entrepreneurship in me, but tech is not something I even knew about until much later in my life. And so I went to undergrad at the University of Denver and what lured me to DU is they had a leadership program called the Pioneer Leadership Program. 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I spent a lot of my middle school and high school doing leadership. I was student body president. I ran a lot of clubs and things like that. And so I knew I cared about leadership and I kind of thought maybe I'll be a world leader, a diplomat, maybe I'll get into politics. Luckily, I did go to the University of Denver for the leadership program, which was at that time a minor in leadership. And I decided to major in French and mass communication. So completely unrelated to tech still. But I spent a lot of my early stage of my career doing kind of marketing, comms, writing a lot. That led to public relations. And so I spent time volunteering as an intern, doing PR campaigns for local causes in the community. I eventually got a few internships doing news and comms public relations. That eventually led to doing PR for a healthcare PR firm. And that's when I was about to graduate and realized that I like PR, but I was a little bit bored in just healthcare and journalism. I spent a lot of the early stage of my career in public relations, but I realized that I was a little bit bored doing healthcare PR. And so then I decided to take that to a different kind of industry. And so at the time, and I'm dating myself, but dot-com was a big deal, right? So I decided to go down the path of moving to Silicon Valley. And um, I didn't know what Silicon Valley entailed. I didn't really understand dot-com, but I knew it was the hot new thing to do. So I moved to San Francisco, and this was back in 99. And it was kind of at the tail end of the dot-com boom. And I ended up spending some time doing public relations for a small firm. And within a few months, I realized that I wanted to run my own PR firm. <laughs> so I left and started a firm called Special Sauce Communications with some of my new friends in PR and tech. And we became a tech PR firm and ran that for a couple of years really early in my career. And I had just started my MBA and I was doing PR for brands like Acer and Conca Television and even Sony when they had the little AI robot, Ibo. So enjoyed that a lot, but September 11th happened. And that shifted a lot of things. And you'll remember, it was kind of crazy because we went through the dot-com bus and then, you know, things were already starting to trail down. And then after that, anything that was extra expenses, like a PR firm just got cut, right? So advertising went way down, PR went way down. And so I actually shut down the firm and accelerated finishing my MBA and then went into a product job at Sun Microsystems. And having exposure to PR and working with a lot of tech companies and working with a lot of the product managers in the world, that led me essentially being able to find my passion for product and realize that what I was really excited about was being closer to product. And so that's what I ended up doing. I went down the career path of running product teams. I ran product marketing for a little while. I ran product management for a little while. And I eventually ended up at enterprise software company VMware, where I launched their online store. And that's when things got a lot more technical because I was dealing with integrations and working with all the different product teams and thinking about the commercial side of things, but also the technical side of implementing software. And I ran into this world where the technical people and the business people always fought. And I didn't like it because it was like limiting for both sides, right? For me as a creative person, I wanted to be able to build cool experiences and do it fast and do it at the scale at which things were moving. But the technical folks always wanted to have a way to innovate and do it their way and do it at the pace at which IT allowed them to. And so there was all this tug of war going on. And so I kind of made it my mission to change that. And that's where raw engineering comes into play. And we became a tech consultancy that in the new world of cloud computing and mobile applications, you know, mobile uh, phones were brand new, bringing those to work. In that world, how do you help large companies balance that divide between business and technical? And how do you build, bring equity on both sides of that um, kind of debate to the table and harmonize what happens inside an organization to ensure that all the experts are able to do their work? 
And so that became kind of a passion. And that's where I went down the journey of building tech products to address those challenges. Fantastic. So interesting. And I love the fact that you started out as a storyteller, as an old media person myself. So you remember, yes, that is such a great training for the kind of work that you do. And speaking of the work that you do, I would love to get your perspective on what it's been like to lead the last couple of years, right? Both professionally, what it's been like to lead, and then some of the impact on you personally as a leader. You know, what are some of the learnings and what are some of the things that takeaways, if you wouldn't mind sharing? For sure. Yeah. So um, kind of fast forward from the raw engineering days to building the companies I built. So I built that consultancy and then I built Content Stack as a product underneath the raw engineering umbrella. And we spun that out in 2018. And so for 2018 and most of 2019, we were just kind of building the company, operating. I raised the Series A late 2019. And at the end of 2019, we had just raised $31 million and I'm hiring, right? We're building a sales team, we're building a go to market team. I get the office lease signed in Austin in February. We get everybody out to Austin, Texas for our big sales kickoff in February of 2020. And we actually built a 25,000 square foot beautiful office also in India for our engineering hub there. And so all this great stuff was happening. We're putting the money to work. We're being really productive, getting a lot of stuff done. And then boom, we're like everything shut down and we're not alone. This happened to everybody and it happened to the whole world, as you know, but it was just interesting time, the verge of like this really exciting momentum. And I guess like in hindsight, really grateful that we had that time in February to get everyone together so that a lot of the newer people had an opportunity to meet, but we were at about 80 people then. And fast forward to where we are today, we're now almost 300 people. So two thirds or more of the company have never met each other face to face. So the challenge that you go through during that time being not deliberately, but forced to be remotely distributed is how do you continue to bridge that, the connection between people and how do you not only implement a culture, but grow that culture and continue to nurture it in these times. And so I think the big takeaway was we were very deliberate about creating and maintaining company culture. We thought a lot about what our values are, what that means to us. And then how do we create connection between people that are very different, living in different places of different ages and interests to still have that tie. So we feel like a tribe and not just remote colleagues. And that was something that we spent a lot of time and effort doing. And it was also a lot of uncertainty that everyone was dealing with. Is this job going to last? Are we going to outlast this pandemic? Am I going to make my number? You know, so we did a lot of things to help with sales quota relief early on. We were very intentional about, we just started to build this company. We're going to continue to build it. And instead of thinking about layoffs or reductions in force, we instead invested in education and training and made sure that the people that we had brought on board had the opportunity to thrive. And luckily we did end up with a little bit of the tailwind that comes with what happened during that time, because companies and brands started to think about digital as a very strategic initiative and digital engagement and personalization and building experiences that were more connected. And that led to a lot of interest in content stack, which then, if you think kind of fast forward, ended up being actually a really good timing for us to continue to build and thrive. In some ways, we were lucky. It took a lot of deliberate thinking. It took a lot of leadership on the people side and through all the managers. And this was global. We have a large workforce in India and in Europe and all over the US. And so spending that time with everybody and ensuring that we're continuing to grow people was very intentional, deliberate, and important. 
That was an amazing overview because I think there are some really key pieces. You know, you said you were deliberate or, you know, how do you create connection among people that have never met in person, invested in training? I think those are all really good takeaways for folks. I think creating connection um, in a virtual space is really, that's difficult, right? It's challenging, but it sounds like you worked way around that. So I just think kudos to you for sort of being ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because we just fielded a survey with Vox Media where we asked women professionals how their lives had changed during the pandemic and the kinds of things that they were looking for in the next future of work, whatever is coming next. And all of them, almost to a woman, endorsed the idea of hybrid and remote work. And they really liked that for their own sense of work-life balance. But they also talked a lot about burnout and how it's great to work at home and you get those two hours back of commuting maybe, but you're also homeschooling your kids and you're on all the time and there's no disconnect. There's no way to disconnect. So for other leaders who are looking for ways to make sure they retain the people that they've worked so hard to bring into their companies, what specific things do you advise people to do so that people don't burn out and so that people really can thrive? Because some of it is about how much do we expect of people to be on all the time? It's such yeah. a tough, tough road. It's interesting because we've kind of created this, the new normal where it, in which people have a lot more flexibility in the timing that they're available, but also a new normal in which people are generally bored and stuck at home. And so they're online and available. And if you look at those two things, they kind of contradict each other, right? And progress is more the former than the latter. And one thing that we did at Content Stack was we implemented, and this we did it for the summers, but we implemented summer Fridays and we did it in 2020 because people were starting to feel the burnout pretty early. You're just like online all the time. And then not only for work and professionally, but also all of your social life is also in front of the Zoom and you're talking to your family and your friends and trying to get together and have some kind of social interaction. But it was fun at first and it was kind of, you know, people wanted it and they wanted that interaction. But over time, of course, people got Zoom burnout too and, and implemented summer Fridays so that everybody would take every other Friday off and we put them on staggered schedules so we wouldn't have to shut down the company and, and make sure that customers are still serviced and everything was still operational. But that every other Friday was family time or a three-day weekend, even if it was like camping in your backyard, but just like get offline and don't get on Slack and just take the time for yourself. Go work out, go for a run, do whatever you do. Do you do you kind of thing, right? And we urged that and we all did it, including all the leaders. We took the time off to give ourselves the opportunity to recharge. And what we learned a lot is that people that were still on on those Fridays found that there was less meetings and they were able to get focused work done. And so we've then pivoted. We do summer Fridays from May to September. And then for the rest of the year, we do focus Fridays, which is every Friday is no internal meetings. And we just have the opportunity to just get like some focused work done so you can sign off a little earlier and enjoy your weekend. So we encourage that kind of behavior, right? And it's important, not just for women, but everybody who's burned out. And I think, and kind of flipping back to the, the other side of things, the fact that there has been this sort of normal of you don't have to meet in person, you can live anywhere, whether you're in Utah or you're in San Francisco, you're still equally accessible. And at the same time, you have the opportunity to entertain your family, be closer to your loved ones, take care of someone elderly in your family. Like those are things that were harder to do when you were expected to be in person in your office five days a week. And so that's evolved a lot. And I think it's going to continue to create this sense of access to a greater population of people that want to contribute to their roles and their work. 
Wonderful. I love that. I hope that these are the good things that last out of the pandemic is that people really understand how important it is to not just live to work, but to work in order to live, right? I mean, we want to make sure that we have those kind of sustainable boundaries. Otherwise, it's all burnout all the time. We actually tried to create some connection too between families. So we had a last summer Saturday mornings, our CTO led coding classes for content stack kids and their neighbors and friends and whoever wanted to show up. And so every Saturday we'd have like two hours of him just teaching kids how to code and they learned how to make video games and things like that. So the content stack kids got to know each other a little bit. And then they participated in ongoing things. We just had International Literacy Day where content stack people volunteered to read to the kids. And then the kids got books to take home. And so we did all that on Zoom, but we just have tried to create connection between various people in threads that make sense to them, whether it's fitness or family or pets or wine, we've created those connections uh, remotely. Very cool. You're articulating a vision of leadership that is so different from the move fast, break things. I don't care how it affects people. You can't hack it. You got to get out of here. I mean, it's a totally different version of leadership, particularly in the tech world. Have your ideas about leadership changed over time? Do you feel as though you're reacting against a culture and are you watching people follow you? I think what's happening is more organic than that. It's being driven by necessity. And you think about like, people are talking about the great resignation. People are generally just burnt out across the board. So you have to create new ways to engage in order for people to be motivated and to feel loyalty to their employer and their colleagues. And so maybe there's like a sense of intention and deliberate leaning into this, but I also think it's organically happening and changing and the companies that will thrive and survive and continue to have good talent will do this naturally. And because they care, not because they have to your lips to God's ears. Indeed. You know, I would love to have you share with us about, with all the things that have happened, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, the importance of, of DEI to you, right? Diversity and equity and inclusion. And, and what, how has that supplemented or even influenced your leadership efforts? That's a great question. It's been such an interesting journey over the last 18 months with DE&I, and it's something that I've always heard about. It's been a part of who I am as an individual and who I am as a leader. And I can trace that all the way back to my childhood where, you know, I was always trying to raise the bar for women in education and non-English speakers in education. And just where I grew up, those were all things that were very real. And so equity in general and access to opportunities and then relatability, which is the layer that is being able to see someone that looks like you or acts like you or talks like you in higher up positions. Those are two things that are super important to me. So providing access and relatability. And from a DE&I perspective inside a company, it starts with who makes up the company and how do they think and how do they make people feel inclusive? And so we've been very intentional with creating actually OKRs inside our organization related to DE&I standards and metrics. And it starts with talent and acquisition, and then of course, retention of that talent. So where are we looking for talent? Can we find talent in places where there's underrepresented talent or minorities? And how do we attract them to our company? And that's the burden of that has to be on the company and the employer, because we all tend to hire people from within our own networks and that look like us, right? And so that's an intentional part of the puzzle. And so our talent and acquisition team has spent a lot of time looking at where are people hanging out where we don't normally find them? 
We've sponsored as a charter member, a program called CSU, which is Customer Success U, which brings underrepresented minorities that want to be career switchers out of hospitality and other industries and into customer success for tech. And we've been able to hire through that program, which is also really cool. I'm a committee member of our diversity team at Insight Partners, which is one of our investors. And they've got a pledge that they've asked all of their portfolio companies to take which is related to diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics. And it's not just lip service, but they actually are asking companies to report on the progress that they're making in bringing minority candidates to the table, hiring minority candidates, retaining them, providing programming and guidance and, and things that will help them to grow inside organizations. So it's really about putting the money in the time where your mouth is, right? Not allowing for lip service and challenging those that say things that don't actually do them. And then just being a kind of a model for that type of behavior for other companies that might be watching. Fantastic. One of our frequent guests uh, in our DEI programming always uses the phrase, you want to bring receipts, show me the receipts. There are a lot of lip service in this realm, and there are not quite as many people who are willing to show the receipts. That's terrific. So I'm curious about thinking back on your career. Is there something that you wish you had known earlier on? I mean, you sound as though you've been so intentional for such a long time. It's hard for me to imagine you ever being a little bit, huh, I wish I'd known that 20 years ago or 10 years ago. What do you think? Um, I think I can maybe trace back to something I wish I would have done sooner. And that's actually, if you look at the software world where I was a services company, right, with raw engineering. And in the services company, I built out three different entities, content stack being one of them, built IO being another. And I was really hesitant to split them because I felt like keeping it all together was the right thing to do. And it took a lot of convincing and a lot of mentorship to help me see the light. And had I seen the light sooner, I think we would have been further and we would have moved faster and we would have been just further along in the journey. And, and I think sometimes you just have to take the leap. I also had really good advice that helped drive me to that decision. And so we, in 2018, restructured what was one services company that had some products under it to three separate companies. And in doing that, we more than quadrupled the value of what existed the day before. And it's just because of how the tech world looks at valuations and SaaS revenue versus services revenue. And I just kind of wish I had been more in tune with that earlier on because it would have been potentially more beneficial. But that's just an example of like the types of things that you, until you do it and you stumble a little bit, you don't really learn it. So being open to listening to people that have seen the movie before and letting them guide you, I think is really important. And I learned that, I don't want to say the hard way, because it still ended up being a really great journey and, and we still benefited quite a bit. But I think just generally just knowing that you should go like always look ahead, who's done that before and be able to listen and listen openly. That's great advice, right? Seeking guidance, but also trusting your gut, right? And, and your own convictions. So with all that being said, is there something that when you look back, is there something you can point to that you are most proud of? Something that you really look back and go, I did that. Not out of ego, but out of just, you know, wow, I really contributed and I'm proud of that. I have to say it probably always comes back to people and how you impact their lives. And so for me, it's really about employing people and helping them to grow. And sometimes they grow and they go and do their own thing. And sometimes they grow and they stay with us and continue to grow up in our organization. And when they either grow beyond what I can offer them 
and you notice that that's like such a rewarding feeling. Like, especially if you bring someone really early in their career and they have the opportunity to learn with you and be a part of the journey and then become someone that you look up to. That's a really, really good feeling. The other side of that is when they thrive financially as a result of all the hard work that you put in. And talked about India a little bit. We've got across the companies, almost 350 employees in India today. And some of them, they bought their first cars as a result of working in our companies, in their own family and in generations, right? Or they were able to get married earlier or that, you know, just big life events that they wouldn't have had access to without being a part of this journey. And that's the most rewarding part of working this hard is seeing people thrive. That's terrific. I wanted to move backwards a little bit. Maybe this is a, a bit dark for us, Nicole, but I like to know about the bad advice that you've gotten. You've talked about the good advice that you've gotten that maybe you didn't take quite as early. You've talked about the things you're proud of. Do you look back and think, oh, somebody gave me some terrible advice that now I try hard not to pass that advice along? I don't know if there's like one specific thing that stands out, but I think fundraising is an interesting one because it's such a different journey for everybody. And I remember when I set out to do the fundraising for content stack, I believed that I was going to raise a series A right away. And because we were, we spun out, we already had customers, we already had some revenue. And that was the advice. Everyone kind of just pushed me towards, you need to go raise a big series A. And at that time, the quote unquote, big series A was like a five to $7 million round. And in hindsight, I was lucky because I also had counter advice to that, that said, you know, what you should do is just raise a small amount of money as a lead round, increase the value of the company and then raise a series A. And so I ended up doing that and I could have gone either way, but by doing that, I increased the value of the company by probably five to 10 X and was able to raise a $31 million round less than a year later. And if you just in hindsight, think about that, like, I don't know if it would have been a mistake to raise more earlier, but I wasn't hindered by the capital because I had the seed capital I needed to do what I needed to. And I didn't have to give up as much equity right away. And I was able to grow more value for all the shareholders in the company, which is mostly employees. And so it was good for everyone, including my seed investors who also believed in me early and were able to make money off of the following rounds. So, Right. So see, conventional advice for you is not necessarily the good advice. The conventional advice can be bad advice. And I think that's so important for women entrepreneurs in particular, and women leaders to remember is that in so many cases, we are making this up as we go along and the things we make up are better. I also think it's okay to fail. It's okay to take the bad advice if we learn from it, right? And it empowers us to really learn, okay, that was a choice I won't make again. And now how am I empowered to, to make a different one going forward? So I think the fails and some of the missteps can be incredibly valuable. Yeah, I mean, failure is also progress in its own form, but it's a matter of how quickly you catch it and how much you don't let it be too much of a setback. And instead you take what you learn and, and push forward. And, and the best leaders do that all the time. And in fact, if you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself enough. I still don't know what I'm doing between now and the next stage. I'm still learning and I'm going to try things and they're not all going to work. Some of them are going to be brilliant and some of them are going to be failures. And that's part of the game. Well, it's a great mindset. And I think conceptually, we, we all get that now, right? But I think in the moment to really not beat ourselves up and go, this is good. This is a learning and reframe it is can be challenging. So it's, it's just fantastic that you've been able to do that. I'd love to know what's inspiring you now. Like what really inspires you? you know, what do you listen to? Get your juice, if you will. 
I love watching people who are maybe not in the norm or in the typical way of doing things, being successful. And I recently met this woman who was now taking her seventh company to over a billion dollars in value. And I just didn't think that that existed. I didn't think that there was such a unicorn in the market. Like it was amazing. I was so inspired by that, that if you go back to the point of relatability, it gave me something to strive for that it was like, wow, she did that not just once or twice or six times, but seven times in a row with the same team. And she's been with that team for 28 years and keeps bringing people along. So I think stories like that really inspire me and get me excited, especially because it's a balance of being really successful on the commercial side, but also having that connection back to the people that helped her get there. And, you know, those 28 people that have stuck with her and been loyal through that whole journey are also thriving. And that to me is inspiring. We often ask people, what is the next mountain you want to climb? And you have a mountain analogy right there. You've got the seven peaks of taking a company to a billion dollars. So is that when you think about your next mountain? I mean, you're obviously you're climbing one at the moment. You're thinking about the next mountain personally or professionally. For me, I'm focused on content stack. It is currently powering really incredible brands at Fortune 1000 companies and their entire digital experiences. And I'm so proud of where that's going. I'm focused on growing that company, whether that means a really exciting exit down the road, whether that's IPO or acquisition remains to be seen, but I want to continue to challenge myself and my team to take it as far as we can. And that's where the focus is now. What happens after that? We'll see. And so I would love to know your team, when you leave the room, what would they say? Well, Neha, her superpower is, how would they describe your superpowers? I think I can rally people around a cause and I've seen it where if I'm really passionate about something like, Hey, we need to own this, or we need to lead this, or we need to be the set the new bar for this in the industry. And if I feel really passionate about it, everyone else starts to feel passionate about it. So there's this like contagious energy towards doing something positive and meaningful and significant in the market. I think that might be one of my superpowers. And I would say the other is bringing people together that are super smart and lifting them up and finding the people that will also lift me up along the way. And you are a product person. And so if you had to describe yourself as a product, what would you be? I travel with my corkscrew and I think it's the most important tool that I own because not only does it open a bottle of wine, but if you need something like if you need to open a box or anything else, it's like the most versatile tool that, that you always have on hand. Maybe I'm a corkscrew for the company. That is the best answer we have ever had. Yeah, that is fantastic. My, my last question for you is around uh, gratitude and what you find yourself most grateful for right now. Well, I'm super happy that there's signs of safety and health ahead. And given what everyone's gone through for the last 18 months, and there's been a lot of tragedy that's come with the last 18 months too. We've lost people that we love in our communities. I'm super grateful for my personal tribe, my friends and my family that always have my back and that always remind me that I'm doing good things and that believe in me. And I'm even more grateful for the tribe at Content Stack that continues to inspire me every day. So I think those are the main things and just looking forward optimistically to a future in which we can all be together again and start to interact normally without being super stressed about our health and our safety. That's wonderful. Neha, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We've gotten so many wonderful tips from you and such a positive vision of what real leadership looks like. Thank you again so much for being with us.
Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much for listening today. Along with my co-host, Nicole Ward-Parr, I invite you to check out all of our upcoming programs at wearewatermark.org. With leadership training and inspirational fireside chats with awesome coaches, entrepreneurs, and women business leaders every single week, we're dedicated to helping you become the leader you were meant to be. We hope you'll consider becoming a member, lend your expertise, or come to one of our in-person conferences. We'll learn, we'll connect, and we'll have fun, I promise. Hope to see you soon. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.